Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Humid Climate Conference. Back in 2015, the Austin chapter of Passive House Alliance US was thinking about how to get more attention to the FIAS Plus 2015 standard in humid climates. And so the thought emerged, what if we put on a conference? I'm proud to tell you that this is an unmissable conference. It's a unique gathering of the best building science minds who are ready to talk seriously about passive house and humid climates. This event is entirely volunteer organized, supported by Passive House Institute US, and sponsored by some of the best product manufacturers and industry consultants in the country. And it's sold out in its first try, but it's happening again this year, May 21st and 22nd, with a great speaker lineup. We're talking Joe Stebrick, Lou Harriman, Richard Corsi, Matthew Tanteri, and the list literally goes on and on and on. Find out more at humidclimateconference.org. Early bird tickets are limited and they're selling quickly, so don't miss out and be left wondering. Register today. That's humidclimateconference.org for tickets. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Oh, welcome to the building science to the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the building science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin. I'm here at AHR with John Miles from Sandon. Sandin is a heat pump water heater manufacturer that relies on a CO2-based uh, refrigeration cycle. And uh, John, please introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is John Miles. I'm the general manager for Sandin Water Heaters here in the U.S., or North America, actually, we should say. Huh. And we're selling the uh, Sanco 2 CO2 heat pump water heater. It's a really unique take on heat pump water heaters driven from the Japanese echo cute and I, I won't butcher the Japanese uh, way of saying it to echo cute um, so cutaki which in, in Japanese basically means cutaki cutaki right or kyotaki or whatever however it's said said and my Japanese accents appalling um, basically means hot water oh really um, an echo means echo right economical is echo in in any language right so um, the real name for this is Shinsen Ribai Hitopompo Kyutaki, which means huh. essentially hot water heat pump um, in Japanese. And everyone that has shortened that name to Echo Cute, and it's the genre of products that were basically introduced into the Japanese marketplace sometime between 1999 and 2001 as a collaboration between Japanese government, industry, and um, the educational facilities, Tokyo University, um, to design a product that outside of the urban areas of Japan, and we're all familiar with Tokyo, Osaka, and the big urban centers of Japan, but outside of Japan, it's very mountainous, it's fairly rugged and rural, and they don't have a huge amount of infrastructure in terms of natural gas moving out beyond the cities and beyond those urban areas so electric water heating was very expensive um, 
Japan, as, you, as most people probably are aware of, is a nuclear power generating area. They don't have much in the way of coal-fired resources or, or natural gas resources of their own. So um, electricity has always been expensive and they use a lot of hot water. They're actually very Americanized in that scenario because they enjoy the bathing culture, right? Where, yes, you have your shower, you get clean, but then you draw a 60 or 70 gallon bath to basically sit down and relax after your hard day slaving away as a salary man oh, and you sit in the bath and you contemplate this and um, so they wanted very hot water temperatures and a lot of hot water capability to create that and they wanted to do it electric and efficient and electric and efficient so heat pumps were sort of the game I mean heat pump water heaters have been around since the 50s but are you serious? Yeah, I mean, the first patent for a heat pump water heater was filed in the U.S. in 1953. Right on. But why, why are they still... They're still not mainstream in the U.S. Oh. And I, I'm just <laughs> learning from you that it's a cultural and an energy cost basis that yeah. drove the Japanese this direction. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, so, um, huh. unfortunately, water heating, for many, many reasons, here has become a first cost issue yep. right yep. whether it's first not cost just water heating it's not just water heating right because at the end of the day the one thing that's interesting about the US world is that you have no idea what each of your appliances cost you a year to run unless you wanted to put amp meters on everything and say oh wow you know it cost me literally $600 or $700 a year to run my electric water heater maybe there's a better way of doing it whereas it fails and it's like oh I just need to run to Home Depot or call my local plumber and put exactly the same thing in and I don't have any clue that over its lifespan it costs me $10,000 a year to run if I do 100 gallons of hot water a day which is pretty easy to do in a four-person household yeah, 60 to 120 so actually let's tell let's tell the listeners that so the uh, electric water heater let's talk about efficiency mm-hmm. what, what is the electrical efficiency or the excuse me the water heating efficiency of a typical electric resistance uh, water below one. I mean it's it's typically 0.9695 something like that so 96 90, I mean, 95 96% you put a kilowatt of energy in which costs you 20 cents, 10 cents, whatever your kilowatt hour rate is, and you get 96% of that out in, so, in hot water. In hot water. And that sounds pretty awesome. But then, I mean, it does. 96, if I got 96 on an exam, I'd be like, woohoo, I'd you know, back in school. But So 96% efficient something, it doesn't sound bad. But tell, tell us about these heat pump water heaters. Well, that's the great thing about heat pump heat pumps in general, I mean, whether it's a water heater or anything like that. Or so, space heating. Yeah, space heating or, or all of that. So, for example, with our unit, if you put one kilowatt in, I can get you 5.2 kilowatts out. So that's basically, wow. you've scored, you now scored 520% on your exam, which yeah. I think gives you an A++, plus plus plus, right? <laughs> or something like that. Plus, plus. Teacher, yeah. I think I cheated. Yeah, right. I mean, like, that's knowing the answers and the extra credit work, so right? So how does that work? How does it get to 520% efficient? Well, so... Essentially, what we, don't, what we don't do is we don't have this amazing machine where we create energy from nothing. Because the unit is... We don't. No, unfortunately not. So we put a kilowatt of, ex- of power into the compressor, into the refrigerant, and what that allows us to do is draw 
the extra energy from the atmosphere outside. So when it's 50 odd degrees outside, there's heat available for us to steal that heat from outside. From the air outside. From the air outside, put it into the refrigerant and then ultimately into the water that we're trying to heat mm -hmm. um, on that particular system. So, so that's how we get the uh, energy bonus on that. Okay, and so I happen to know that on that same exam, most of the American heat pump water heaters would get about a 250% score. Yeah, they, they get they get 2.5 to 3. And, and right. those are COPs, by the way, coefficients of performance, 2.5. But it, it's referring to efficiency. Yeah. I mean, a COP is essentially a, a calculation of capacity out divided by input in, right? So it's a very straightforward calculation. It's yeah. a dimensionless number. So why is it that the U.S. ones are getting like 2.5 and, and you're getting... Five, well, five I mean, so we've packed ours with as much technology as we possibly can. So our compressor, for example, the U.S. uses what we call a fixed-speed compressor, where it runs at one speed whether it needs to or not. Um, the Sandon unit uses a variable-speed compressor. So it, essentially, we can look at the U U.S. product. If you take that analogy to your automobile, it's like going everywhere with your throttle or your accelerator pedal flat on the gas, right? And you go everywhere at 100, mi 100 miles an hour or flat out. Whereas with us, it's like putting your, fat, you know, your foot on the gas and just drawing along quite nicely, you know, at a steady speed, depending on road conditions, etc., like that. Whereas, so we can reduce your gas mileage or reduce your energy consumption and improve our COP no, you can from increase that. increase the mileage. Yeah. Yeah. So you said there's a lot of technology in here just then. How, how's the reliability on these units? Um, it's actually pretty amazing, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, there's a lot of technology, but it's, it's technology that we've been familiar with for 15-odd years in, in the Japanese marketplace. Um, Sandon is um, one of those companies that, even though the brand name may not be familiar, um, we provide the compressors for 25% of the world's automobiles that are manufactured today. Oh, really? um, we count our failures in like decimal points per million of compressors. So, decimal points. Yeah, um, because those are what the, the manufacturers, the auto manufacturers like Mercedes and BMW and some of the other high the brands, they all require. So, you know, our, our, our efficiency, our reliability performance is, is pretty amazing and we back that with a you know, industry best warranty anyway. So. That's super cool. So, variable speed compressor. There's also a refrigerant difference, right? And that makes a fundamental change. Is there, is there a simple metaphor, a simple way to talk about that? Uh, <laughs> um, so, one of the no. other... Um, <laughs> in a roundabout way, no. Um, <laughs> one of the things with the American units, or the US-style product, is... It has to live inside of the house or a space um, for it. Um, typically, it wants to see ambient temperatures no lower than 35, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Because it's, it, as we, the one thing about stealing the heat from the air is that the, the end result of that is yes, you get that warm water, but you also get cold air mm -hmm. being blown off mm -hmm. it. Um, the way that the refrigerants are designed. Um, with the other units is they're good at doing that only to a certain temperature point um, whereas what we have picked um, 
for this reason and the reason that you know the Japanese market wanted it they wanted the unit outside it gets cold in Japan they wanted to have the ability to make hot water when it was cold outside so we went way way back into the history of it and went to one of the original refrigerants carbon dioxide it was actually back in the 1890s it was a very very popular refrigerant until people started synthesizing the synthetic refrigerants um, that we used to use so CO2 has this innate ability um, you know we can go and do a high school physics lesson or chemistry lesson and, and talk about it but it has this uh, amazing ability even when it's minus 10 outside zero whatever of making 165 degree hot water so it it just really has this amazing ability to capture any heat even when it, you think there's no heat available because it's freezing outside capture that put it into the unit um, into the water and get that water temperature up nice and high so it's one of the great things about our unit so how cold can it be outside and this system still run okay i mean because at some point it gets too cold out right well not really i mean there's always heat um yes, so we, we've had these we have these units running below negative 20 negative um, 20 and making negative 20 fahrenheit, fahrenheit. Wow. and making 160 degree water that's amazing. Okay, so it's using CO2 as a refrigerant. The unit is outside. So that, that's a benefit right there. The tank can be either inside or outside. Is that right? Well, I mean, the tank lives wherever Ideally. you want the tank. I mean, idea, most of the time you want it inside. Yeah, and, well, it's not just that. It's also about plumbing, right? This is a system, right? So you want the tank as close to the major use of hot, of hot water that you have whether it's the bathroom or, or whatever it is because you know it's that age-old thing where you stand in the shower and you're waiting like you know how long for your hot water to arrive well the closer the tank is to that the shorter that does unless you go for a recirculation loop so it's a system style thing so the idea with the tank is that it can go they're very compact they have very little um clearance requirements so they can go you know for example we did a 30 unit apartment block in Seattle just recently where these go in a closet under the stairs and you couldn't do that with a normal American style heat pump water heater right so because the compressor is attached because the compressor is attached to it it needs airflow it needs a hundred cubic feet to uh, breathe properly whereas with our unit the heat pump being outside the tank more like 850 or 1000 yeah. cubic feet something like that yeah. So yeah, ten by ten by ten, right? So, so um, yeah, it's it needs that area to breathe to get the air in and out of itself. Whereas our tanks just sit around and kind of look pretty. And so we're actually this sound right here is we're, we're doing this interview on top of a tank. Um, so this is a how many gallon tank? This is a forty three. Okay, and I'm like six two, and it's up to my belly or something. Yeah. And so what runs in and out of this? Is refrigerant going no. in and out of this? It's a water tank. So this is manufactured. This is actually um, a little bit different to a normal water heater tank that you're probably familiar with. It looks the same, but under the skin, this is actually stainless steel. Wow. Um, so it's not a glass-lined enamel, which is sort of the normal. Um, and that's why they fail, because the enamel eventually cracks and the rust gets in behind it. And mm -hmm. know, away but it, it goes. is first cost-optimized. Yeah. I mean, I will give you that. I mean, stainless <laughs> steel is not a cheap uh, solution for us, but it's a better solution. Yeah. So, and how, I mean, there's got to be some restriction on the length between the outdoor and indoor. 
like you have a water line running in. Okay, so the water line has to be very well refrigerated, uh, insulated. Yes. I mean, so there's a there's if a. If it's minus twenty out, <laughs> then I got a hose. Yeah, I mean, we insulate the water line with um, an inch closed cell armor cell, which is readily available. Um, when the temperatures are low, we also put a self-regulating heat tape on it, oh, which is okay. basically like a, a little electric heater that draws about eight watts per foot. We have a really intelligent one that's manufactured by Raychem. It has the ability to vary its heat output every inch. Wow. It's uh, pretty amazing. Um, doesn't look very amazing. When you look at it, it's just a black cable, but the technology involved is, is pretty good. So, so yeah, we insulate. The unit has its own freeze protection program set up, and, and as you say, it can be about 50 feet away from the tank. 50 feet away. And so that, that water line goes from the outdoor unit, the heat pump unit, and it goes straight through the wall, or does it go inside? How does it usually work? Um... Well, it's a myriad of different things based on that, but typically the, the typical installation would be that you'd set the outdoor unit outside. Um, it can it be wall-mounted outside? Yes, yeah, it can. Uh, it can live up on a bracket. You can hide it behind a deck or behind a bush or whatever it is. Um, typically, you'd then core a, about uh, um, a couple of inch hole um, between um, in the wall snake your two water lines in between there and there's a temperature sensor that runs between the tank and the heat pump that controls the heat pump operation so that's a wire it's a wire yeah and basically when the tank gets cold it tells the outdoor unit to start the pump in the outdoor unit and to bring the cold water from the tank to be heated and then drop that hot water back into the tank okay interesting so what is, I see a bigger tank over there. How big is that tank? That's 83. 83 gallons. Um, and we're also going to come out with um, 119 gallons here, mostly aimed at the light commercial marketplace. I can see that, yeah. Um, Multifamily. One of the other kind of weird things you can do with our unit, oh, maybe not weird, but um, is there's nothing to stop you putting two units on one tank. So each one of these units creates around about 20 gallons an hour of hot water. Um, so if you have a high usage scenario, say it's a school kitchen or a restaurant or fast food or a, you know, a light commercial style application, you could put two heat pumps on to one tank, which is why the, we're going for the bigger tank. And then you can, you know, you can deliver maybe 130, 140 gallons of hot water out of that tank and make it up at 40 gallons an hour. So you have some flexibility with our systems and we use that in, in some multifamily work, in some like commercial operation and things like that. that so, uh, so the 160 degrees is pretty hot. I know most people aim for 120 to 140. How do you, is there an anti-scalding situation? I mean, how do you handle that hot water? So actually, 160 is kind of low range for us. Um, really? We can, we can take this unit up to 175. Um, if I wanted to take the brakes off, I could get 194, but we govern it to 175. So you can set the temperature outside um, depending on, on your personal Wait, you preference. Set, you set the water temperature at the outdoor unit? At the outdoor unit, somewhere between 130 and 175, depending. Oh, I see. So you don't have to set it. It doesn't... 
It makes 160 degree water, but it can be diluted down to whatever temperature you prefer. Yeah, and then when, when we provide the units, it comes with an anti-scold valve, which then you dial down to 110, 115 for your normal bathing habits, mm -hmm. right? So the reason that you do the higher water temperatures is depending on your individual user preference or user hot water profile, you may want to say, I'll make some hotter water and store it as a thermal battery in the tank, especially if you have, for example, photovoltaic on your roof or something like that. During the afternoon when the sun's shining, you can take all that energy, push it through your photovoltaic panels and store it at 170, 165 degrees in the tank as thermal energy and then use that thermal energy bleed it out through the night and through the morning rush ready to replenish during the afternoon. So, Because you can always mix it with the cold water. Yeah, and, yeah, that, and that's exactly what the anti-scold valve does that we provide with the system. You know, because most of the time you're going to take it out at 110, 115. But if you have this 43-gallon tank full of 160-degree hot water you mix it with 45 or 50 degree cold water incoming, you're only, for every gallon of hot water you use, you only use about 0.6 gallons out of the tank. Right on, that's cool. So, thinking about the numbers you started out this interview with, where we said it was like, um, roughly 100 gallons a day is roughly $600 a year for hot water. Are those legit numbers? I mean, you've, you've gone through some math on those? Yeah, I mean, we've done... Um, I'm curious how that would relate to dollars per year for one of these in that same situation yeah i mean we put some numbers together with the help of washington state university okay. um who've done some extensive re research on this and and there's been a lot of research done up in the northwest on heat pump water heaters and water heating in general in terms of of cost because you know you know if we look at the northwest itself there are two million electric water heaters up there just in sort of Seattle, you know, Washington, Oregon. They don't have gas, natural gas distribution up there? Oh, they have hydroelectric, right? Is that one of the reasons? They have that. They have some wind, but it's just historically been outside of Seattle and, the, you know, it comes back to that analogy we made right at the start where it's Japan, right? And it's outside of the urban areas. You're sort of off the natural gas grid, right? So everyone's gone to electric water heaters or maybe some LP ones and... The, the utilities up in the northwest now want to, have been looking at the Japanese model and it's like how do we replicate that and reduce our overall grid because you remember that you know we talked early in the in the podcast about the fact that you've got a one kilowatt in on an electric water heater and 96 kilowatts out well a typical electric water heater has a 4.5 kilowatt element in it so Every time that element fires to make that hot water for you, you're firing at four and a half kilowatts. So that's, you know, at 10 cents a kilowatt, it's 45, 45 cents. At 20 cents, it's 90 cents. And it's also a big load on the grid. So if you imagine those two million electric water heaters all turning on at once, that's a lot of electrons having to fly down, a lot of transmission lines. Mm -hmm. And if we said, okay, you replace all those with sandum, which would be absolutely spectacular for me. Um, you know, I can take that um, 9 million kilowatts that we just did, and I can take that down to 1 million kilowatts, because, you know, or 2 million kilowatts, because I've got 2 million units all burning 1 kilowatt. So it's a 4.5 times That's if, awesome. reduction. 
It'll so be, there's a societal level benefit, right? Because you don't have to invest in the grid, you don't have to maintain the grid, you can take peaker plants offline. And, yeah, I mean, and they have, I mean, certainly, you know, I can speak a lot for the Northwest because we do a lot of work up there, you know, is that they can now shut down coal power plants, they can go to wind. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we've got with our units is what we call a demand response program where the utility has got too much electricity can fire our units up ah. store that electricity as thermal hot water storage. as thermal storage as thermal batteries and that's something that they're really interested in doing they, they always have a glut of wind power at like 4am when nobody's actually using electricity because everyone's still in bed that is so cool that is super super cool so so you look at it and it's like yes it's one little device but if you kind of like just keep pushing yourself down the rabbit hole there's this huge ripple effect mm-hmm. that goes all the way up to how we generate power as, in the future okay so this might be outside of your technical expertise but you know, we got to get these devices into homes and that means we got to go to the to the people that make the decision on what am I going to do for water heating. And typically, it's actually not the homeowner. It's usually the installer. You know, the homeowner's like, my water heater broke. The installer says, no, no problem. I'll install whatever I decide is best. And that's usually whatever I know. What can we do as a society to get the installers to recommend heat pump water heating? Well, that's kind of the reason we're here, right? I mean, yeah, yeah there's 65,000 people come to this show. Yeah, this is crazy. Um, yeah, now everybody stops and says hi and, and uh, but you know we spend I mean I spend personally a lot of time out on the road training contractors training mm-hmm. our distributors teaching them how to do this unit and, and why they want to sell it do they like it once they understand it yeah I mean the typical you know it's kind of like the ads you see in the airplane magazines for the like this eight minute exercise machine right you know where you know you see it you don't understand it then you like look at it and it's like and then they put the first one in and it's like you know holy xyz right this thing just <laughs> you know i can't believe it works so well it's so easy yeah right and how easy it was to install because it's just water lines a little bit of electric power and uh, off you go from there so it, you know it, it's you know, I don't want to say when you do your first one, you never go back, but <laughs> that's kind of the, the the program that we like to work on, right? So, um, all right. Well, thank you. I think that's that's a lot of good information for people to hear, and I appreciate it. And I think it's fantastic societal level benefits from one little machine like a water heater. Thank you, John. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about the low global warming potential of CO two either. Oh, let's talk about that for. Let's wrap up. Tell me about that. I mean, that's one of the other benefits of CO2. Not only is it the best fluid for us in an economic point of view um, for, you know, getting the best bang for the buck out of the unit, you know, making that hot water, doing it as efficiently as possible. There's this little thing called global warming potential, Mm -hmm. right? You know, refrigerants, you know, the state of California is to paraphrase them, has determined that refrigerants are a a short-lived pollutant. You know, because their global warming potential. So our competitors use our 134A and our 410A. So 134A has a global warming potential of 1,430. Our 410A has a global warming potential of 2,086. What that essentially means is that if I had a pound of 410A in my pocket and I just opened the canister and let it all fly out into the atmosphere, over the next hundred years that 
one pound of 410A will do the same amount of damage as releasing 2,086 pounds of CO2. Oh my gosh. Right, and we all know that CO2 is the metric that we use to yeah. determine pollutants. If I did the same with the 134A, it's 1,430 pounds, over a 100 year period, okay. right? If I released the same amount of CO2 because it lives in the atmosphere with us, it's what we call a natural refrigerant, it's got a global warming potential of one. Mm -hmm. So it's a magnitude of one 2,086th of damage to the atmosphere if it was to leak out of the system. You know, and everything has an end of life program. Well, it's all supposed to be recovered and things like that. You know, there's an end of life cost or a leak cost occasionally on these systems. So it's a natural refrigerant, it's a low global warming, so it has an environmental impact on that point of view. I get it, and, and not only that, but you're taking out the CO2 from the atmosphere and you're sticking it here in your compressor. A <laughs> small amount, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, it's a, by actually it's a, you know, you laugh about that, it is a byproduct of of a, another operation, so it's not something that right. people spend, you know, extra time. So if the people that distill pure oxygen out of the air have, end up with pure CO2 as a byproduct. So we take that as a as our refrigerant. We call it our 744. So you know, it's not something that you have to spend a special amount of time doing. And, mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. Now that you've said that, it gets me thinking. Okay, so why is it that not? Why are we using 134A and 410A and not CO2? There must be some downside to CO2. Something harder about it, or. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, what, what we look at is it's, it's a cost, right? I mean, it's, um, oh. at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we can play that first cost ROI payback game, right? You know, and, and CO2 is, is, you know, technology that unfortunately the rest of the world has embraced significantly. Mm -hmm. You know, Japan in particular, um, being very, very environmentally conscious, and they're using it all over the place. They're using it um, not just in the water heaters. There's half a million of these types of water heaters sold every year in Japan, um, but they're using it in refrigeration systems. Um, you know, they're set all their 7-Elevens and convenience stores are starting to move to CO2 refrigeration. What about in this country? Slowly, you're seeing the companies, you know, Whole Foods and, and some of these other guys move to. CO2 refrigeration, but they're again balancing that capital cost mm -hmm. against, you know, and, um, against the cost of the additional. Um, Does it yeah. balance out over owner over the lifetime of ownership? I mean, no. Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, depending on your water usage, we can pencil out anywhere in a payback period against electric or an LP um, gas water heater in the. Um, low two years maybe oh three years something like that yeah that's incredible yeah we and i mean the united states as a consuming society cons consumer society we really are fixated on first cost instead of the the service this is a thing that's going to provide a service to me and so there's the cost of putting it in my house and the cost of using it at my house we really need to be thinking more about long-term costs of ownership yeah it's funny i mean one of the guys um from a distributor up in the Washington State area you know he's um, he says to me I've, I've lived in my house for 30 years and the reason I know that is I've replaced three water heaters over that time period <laughs> right because you know I come home and the basement's full of 
mildly warm water, right? And I put, you know, we essentially take that one out, put a new one in, and it's exactly the same one year after, you know, time after time. It's it's one of those weird products that water heaters, we expect them to fail at some point, whether it's six years in or it's eight years or ten years in. And we all run, rush off like lemmings to the Home Depot and get exactly the same thing without thinking like, oh, hold on a minute, how much did this actually cost me over its lifespan to run? Thank you again, John. Fantastic interview. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, Christoph. You're a natural, my friend. Have you done that before? <laughs>